In this episode of the Encouraging Inspired Podcast, I'm joined by my friend, our Grammy Award-winning audio engineer and media producer, Steve Pajot. Uh, we start off the episode asking or talking about him being born in New York as an uh, uh, American, but have a permanent resident card in Montreal, uh, Quebec, you know, or Canada as well. Steve talks about also... Uh, how he developed his love for music early on by watching the TV show Fame, as well as watching the Jackson 5. He shares that his dad also is a musician and had a love for music and wanted to have kids that were in the same group. But the only problem with that was that Steve was the only quote-unquote Jackson. <laughs> Steve shared the great story about winning the Canadian music competition at the age of 16 as a concert flutist. Uh, he had a dream to go to Juilliard school. He start, He shared how difficult it is having Haitian parents and trying to convince them to attend uh, music, a music school like that. He then decides to initially pursue a career in computer programming instead of pursuing music. He got a job after graduation as a PCB designer, which stands for Printed Circuit Board Designer, where he then started, where then he started to buy equipment to start producing music. He talked about his meeting with Puff Daddy in 1993 and being told that his meeting wasn't good enough. And so he went back to Canada and then moved back to New York years later in 1997 to pursue his dreams and goals of making in the music industry and eventually meeting Ron Lawrence, who was a part of the music production group, The Hitmen. Uh, Steve's hard work and perseverance ultimately led him to being a part of the platinum album Thug Mentality in 1999 for Crazy Bone. Steve also had the opportunity to work with some of America's most recognizable brands as a jingle producer. And also the opportunity he had to work with the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. Uh, he's been also a veteran in the music sync licensing space and had music placed in several reality shows uh, because he inked a deal with MTV. Uh, also, he talks about his experience being a judge on BT's one of his Parks Freestyle Friday. And also being slated to work on Michael Jackson's final studio studio album, although it didn't happen due to his passing, he still looked at it as a, looked at the opportunity as a blessing to even be considered and felt real validation as a producer. Uh, we end the episode discussing some of his mentorship programs and guest lectures at SAE and his passion for artists and music uh, production development. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode of the Encourage Inspire Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Encourage Inspire Podcast. This is your host, Darrell Peart. And I am with uh, one of my good friends and, and, and guys that I respect greatly. He is a Grammy Award-winning engineer, producer, songwriter, all those type of deals. You know, he's 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 done some amazing things. My guy, Steve Pajot. Steve, what's going on? How you doing? Hey, I'm all right. How about yourself? I'm doing well, man. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on to my podcast uh ever since we connected man you've you've definitely taken a liking to me and and i appreciate you for that man and, and we've been able to build a great relationship you know we got connected just on social media 
<laughs> thank you very much for the code for those kind words. Ah, man, um, it's 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 well it's well deserved, man. And you 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 immediately saw my value um, when we first connected, and and that means a lot to me what, what I'm doing. So, thanks. Like know, I always I always believe that uh, you got to keep solid people around you, um, and that's the power of technology. We can be in different parts of the country. In your case, different parts of the world, you, you know, you have dual citizenship, though, which we'll talk about that, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm legal in both. Well, I'm American. Yeah. And I have my permanent resident card in Canada. Oh, nice. nice. So no, I'm not a Canadian citizen. Oh, oh, okay. Got you. Okay, cool. I'm an American citizen. Right. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you about that. Um yeah, so real quick, even before we get into that, so like I said, we connected on social media. Actually, and and initially you reached out to me about getting involved with New School Rules with Hanker. I think that's yeah. how we initially connected. Yeah, 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 on Facebook. Yeah, because I think you saw me post on this. I think what Jesse Atkins, Atkinson, I think his name is. Uh, Atkins. Yeah, and I think you saw one of my posts and you just reached out to me and started the conversation. Uh, once we, you know, and then uh, after that, we connect. After that, we started uh, dialoguing about you guest speaking at my alma mater, Full Sail University. And we were able to set that up, and that was yep. a cool experience, man. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was fun. You definitely dropped a lot of gems that day. I know students actually came, uh, reached out to me after your, after your talk and was really appreciative of. Of, of what you shared with them. You, you definitely dropped the real knowledge. And we're going to get into some of that same stuff today. All right, cool. Um, yeah, man. So 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 talk to me, man, about, like I said, it was being born in, 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 in the U.S. and in New York and then also spend, spending many years in, in, in Canada. Uh, and, and, what that's, and what's that been like for you? Well, you know, I've been able to, um, to set a mark in the music industry. Right. And I've been very fortunate and by the grace of God, you know, everything came came, came to, to reality. Right. You know, it was a dream of mine from the minute I saw Michael Jackson winning all those Grammys, Grammy Awards. Yeah. And from that night, I was like, wow, I wonder how it's like to to win something like that and to be in the limelight, right. to do something and to make to do something from your heart that'll make people smile and and enjoy life. You know what I mean? Right. And by seeing Teddy Riley, Babyface, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis on the front cover magazines, it really it really motivated me to pursue my dream. So oh, that's yeah, that's that's great. And you know, you know, a lot of people. The difference between happiness for a lot of people is they just haven't, they just, a lot of people just were, they got so comfortable in life. They didn't, they were afraid to pursue their dreams. And that's oftentimes that's, that's the people who are happy, who live a happy life, regardless of what the money is, regardless of money, but uh-huh. happiness, you know, yeah. I think is the ultimate all around life, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there's people that got tons of money. They got tons of money, more money they know what to do with, but they're not happy. They're so not happy. That could tell you a lot of things, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that we don't need money. We need money as a, as a tool to live, but, that can never be your happiness. That can where you draw your happiness from. So I, I totally feel you. By living, living your dream and, and pursuing what you got to pursue, 
to uh to live a happy life and, and do what you love to do and that's what the premise of this podcast is mm-hmm. really about you know um i cover three different things on this podcast uh when it comes to the episodes we talk about disability awareness obviously i have a disability but you already know that you know music business stuff and topics to help creatives and independent creatives and as well as people's stories that encourage and inspire me so uh you check really two out of those three boxes so you were the perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were one of somebody I had to get on here, man. So yeah, that's yeah. what it's all about, man. So 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 talk to me about like your, your early childhood, like your early start. How you how you fell in love with music? I mean, you talked about it, but even a little bit more deeper, like how how you how did you fall in love with with music? How did you know, like, man, this is this is this is just, this is something for me, you know? All right, cool. So it all started when I was about three years old. My dad had bought me um, a small guitar. Okay. And and every day while my mom was at work, he would give me guitar lessons. So from the minute I started, I finished eating, you know, he would get on his guitar and I'd get on my guitar. Oh, okay. He would teach me how to read music how to play chords, you know, it was a daily routine. You know how some, some parents take their kids to hockey practice in the morning or yeah. baseball practice in the afternoon? Right. For me, it was music. Okay. It was music. And at that time, you know, the Jackson 5 were blown up. Okay. And my dad's dream was to have a Jackson 5 band. But uh. the only problem... The only problem, I was the only Jackson. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So I had, I had to be Tito. I had Everybody. to be Michael. Everybody. I had to be Jermaine. <laughs> I had to be the entire crew. <laughs> you know? Right. So, and by doing my music every single, by, by doing music with my dad every single day, to me, I guess I thought this is what's going to be my life. Mm-hmm. You know, understand what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how I got into doing music and doing it today as a career. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know that ultimately led you to a um, a major competition that you won in Canada. Like, um, oh. but talk to me about that. Like, and that, that obviously led to you working on a lot of international projects at the time. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is how it, it all happened. So when I turned I think um eight years old, I started playing seven years old, I started playing the recorder. Okay. All right. In elementary. Because right. the guitar, the guitar was the strings, it was metal, metal, um, I think um metal, 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 metal strings. And okay. and my fingers were hurting me every time I finished playing. Oh, okay. And my dad didn't didn't realize that he could have changed changed them to nylon nylon strings oh okay. if he had done that that would have helped me a lot and i'd probably still be a guitar player today okay but but i switched i switched to the recorder you know the little flute that we all we all learn how oh to yeah, play I, did, I, yeah I did yeah i did that too yeah 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 so i took it very seriously so from age seven to age 12 that's all i did even at home when my dad really played, I remember playing a lot of Beatles music, all types of music. 
mm-hmm. and I'll be playing the melody and he'll be on the guitar. So mm-hmm. it was the same routine, but different instrument. Mm-hmm. And when I turned 13, a friend of mine who went to the same elementary as me, he said, Steve, I'm going to this um, classical music school called Piala Pop. Now that school, you see, I lived in, in Cote d'Ange, or urban, you know, urban mixed type of population. Okay. But, but Pierre Laporte, it was in the rich area. As soon as you crossed the train tracks, it was a different lifestyle. Okay. You saw Ferraris, BMWs, all types of cars that you wouldn't see where I lived. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, so I went for the audition. So he told me he was going for the audition. So, so I told my mom, this is where I want to go to high school. And this is the high school I want to go to. And the reason why I chose that high school is because back in the day, there were stories saying that when you go to a new high school and if people don't know you, you get beat up. All right. So he did karate. So wherever he was, he was going to go. I was going to go follow him. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I went to do my audition, my audition, appeal apart. And when I got there, there was a list. I came with my little recorder and they told me we don't, they don't teach the recorder, but this is a list of instruments that they, they, they had. There was a piano, there was guitar, violin, saxophone, and I saw the concert flute. Ah. And I was always intrigued by the concert flute because I didn't understand how would, how, how, how they had the flute sideways and read music without seeing the notes on right. the instruments. You know, when you play piano, you can see the notes. Right. When you play on guitar, you can see the notes, the bass, likewise. Right. But I didn't understand how they knew how to where to where to position their fingers. Right. So when I saw the concert flute, I, I told them, this is the instrument I want to learn. And they said, all right, no problem, because I had my audition was good on the on the recorder. So I passed my audition. So the following Monday, when I went back to my elementary school and I told my boy, I said, guess what? I got accepted at Pierre Laporte. He said, oh, Steve, I forgot to tell you, I'm going to a different school. Man, my heart dropped. I said, what? You're going to a different school? Oh my God, now I'm really going to get beat up. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I couldn't go back to my mom and tell the school that I didn't want to go because, you know, I, don't have, I didn't have no protection. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. So that's how I ended up going at, going to Piala Port High School. Okay. So every day we had theory music, history music. I was in the choir. I was in the chamber, chamber music. I was in the orchestra, orchestra, orchestra class. And I had my private lessons every, every week, one-on-one. And I had my, um, solfege, um, Every classes, every, we had all the music classes, and we had the regular classes like math, French, um, geography. You know the whole nine yard. So every day I would start school. We'll start at eight twenty-five and finish at four o five, because I was in the music department. And twice a day I would have like fifty minutes to practice my instrument, like in the okay. morning and the afternoon, and that went along for five years. Okay. So when I turned 16, um, I heard about the Canadian Music Competition. Okay. And 
my teacher was, um, his name was Eric Wilner. And I asked him, I said, um, Mr. Wilner, there's, um, there's a competition called um, the Canadian Music Competition and I'd, and I'd love to join. He said, you know what, Steve? It's better if you join next year. Let's prepare yourself. Let's pre we're gonna prepare you. So by next year, you'll be, you'll be ready to participate. Because he said, what he said, he noticed that I was really eager to become real good, very good at, at playing the flute. He said, Steve, playing the flute, playing any instrument is like building a house. You can have the biggest house in the world, but if your foundation is not solid, one day it's gonna collapse. Right. So he said, it's better if, make sure your foundation on the flute is solid, that way, that way you will be the best flute player in the world. Right. And I took that into consideration. And from the moment he told me that every single day, I was practicing, practicing my technique, my breathing, all types of piece, music, uh, flute piece to be ready for the following year. So the following year, at that time I was working at McDonald's. Mm. And <laughs> so I got the registration, the application to enter. And it said, um, I think the fee was $40. And I went up to my mom. I said, um, the fee is $40 to join in. She said, join what? I said, the music competition. And she said, oh, no, no, no. They're just trying to steal your money. Don't believe that. I said, <laughs> oh, please, no, it's for real. And then, and then what I did at that time, I was working three days a week at McDonald's. Oh. So every shift, I'd make $15. It was a five-hour shift. No, it was a three-hour shift. And I was getting paid $5 an hour. Oh, wow. Minim minimum um, wage. Right. So, so it was from five, from five to eight, three times during the weekend. So I took my check. I had a $45 check that I hadn't cashed. Ah. So I took that money and I filled out the application and I sent it. Wow. And, and I entered and I entered the competition. So there were three rounds. There was the first round, um, regional, which was Montreal. So I had to learn a piece. I had to learn a study, a flute study, and um, a, a normal piece, a regular piece by heart. So I passed the first round. So then the second one, I had one month. The, the second one was the provincial. The provincial is the same. It's the equivalence to state, state finals, state competition. Okay. So it was, I was competing within the state of um, province of Quebec. So I had one month to learn my, my, my song. So the first week I learned the song. The second week I learned it by heart. The third week I memorized it. And the final week it was just practicing as if I was competing. Right. So the day before the competition, we were far up north called Wainoranda. And I the night before, I spent six hours practicing in my room. Mm. And then the next day, there was a competition. It went well. Two days later, at the ceremony, they named my name going to the National Finals of Canada. Wow. <laughs> I was 17 years old. Wow. And that's how, that's how, and that's the competition I won. Man. Steve, you know what that shows me, man, is that, which is why you're, why you're successful today, is because you train like an athlete. You trained, you take music seriously, 
you knew that this is something that you wanted to do for a living. It wasn't, because most people look at music as something you do on the side. It was always something, but you knew, no, this is something that I'm going to dedicate my life to and the craft of it. And I think that's yeah. something that's missing today in music is that, I've, and I've, I preach this religiously, but music nowadays has become a hustle. Nobody yeah. wants to, nobody wants to learn the craft of it. Nobody wants to go through the work, the hard work, the grind of it, you know, and, and what you just shared that story is you, t- you, you took your craft seriously, man, mm-hmm. and you put in the work and you reap great things from that. So that's what I took Thank from the story, from what you just shared. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, man. But that's, that's really how it is with music. You know, it's um, you got to dedicate, dedicate your life to it. You know, it's the same thing as loving somebody. You don't, you don't have, you don't love somebody. Just have go half on the love. You know what I mean. Right. Same thing with your instrument. Your instrument is is a person to to a real musician. Their instrument is is the lover. Right. You know what I mean. Right. You got to treat your instrument because if you don't treat your instrument right, you won't be able to play it the way you want to play it. Exactly. It's like every day you touch your instrument. You get closer, you build a rapport. And I forgot to tell you, every day while I was competing, every night I'll I'll sleep with my flute. I'll have my flute next to me. Oh, so I can okay. get used to it. Okay. And that's how I fell in love with that instrument. Oh man, that 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 is uh, that is like again, like I said, that type of dedication is missing today. And I think um yeah. for folks who are listening to this podcast. Hopefully they, they take something from that and the type of dedication it takes and the work it takes. You know, unfortunately, you know, in, in the record business, the artist development days is over. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into, you know, your, your real start in the, in, in the, in, in the record business here in, a, in a minute. But I think that that's the equivalent of like why artist development is so important because that's when you learn the craft of this. That's when you learn what it takes to uh, to do it, you know, to do it, to do it, the, and do it the right way. Yeah, you know. So moving forward after that, you know, you, you decide. Okay, I'm ready. So when did you decide you were ready to kind of jump into trying to get involved in the music industry? Now, so now you won that competition. You know. Okay. Take well, what year is this, roughly? Um, that was in, that was in '88. Okay, that's when I won the competition. Okay. So, so I finished winning the competition. So, so um, it was the year I was graduating from high school. Okay. And my, my dream was to go to, because back then I used to watch Fame all the time. You remember that show? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I knew it was at Juilliard School in New York. Okay. Like that whole, that whole scene, it was in Ju- at Juilliard School. Okay. So... My goal was to go to Juilliard also. Okay. And um and so one so the final concert we had with my high school, it was at um it was at um a theater called um a venue called Sal Salveson Denzi in Outremont, another okay. rich part, you know, in Montreal. Okay. So it was a gala. So that night I had a solo with the orchestra and I had a solo with the piano, with my piano player. Okay. And I invited, so I bought the tickets for my parents so they can sit front row seat. 
Okay. Because that's the night I was going to ask okay. them if I could go to Juilliard. Okay. You know what I mean? Because okay. it was, at that time, it was, it was kind of hard to, um, um, you know, I, you know, my parents, you know, we're Haitians, all right? And mm-hmm. it's hard to tell a Haitian parent that, it's hard to tell Haitian parents that you want to do music for, for live as, as a living. Right. I remember you shared. I remember you so, said that before, right? Where you were speaking, you talked about that and how hard that was. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to convince them to show them that I was built for it. Right. So the the night I played at the gala, I had a standing ovation with the orchestra and my solo piece. Okay. Like they were clapping so hard that I went back and and bowed. You know. And my parents saw that. And I'm on our way back, I was like, all right, good. When I get home, so I was preparing my speech, like how I'm gonna I was how I was gonna ask my dad. So when I get home, when we get home, when we got home, and I'm like, Daddy, I'd love to go to Juilliard. And then he said, Juilliard. I said, Yeah, that's in New York. And another thing, parents don't like, don't really let their kids, you know, go away. Like they have to be, they have to know what you're doing at all times. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) So even going to New York at age 17, I knew it was going to be a problem. It was going to be difficult to convince, convince them. So I asked my dad if I could go to Juilliard and he was like, Steve, you know, the music business is not, is not easy. I'll feel, I feel more safe, more secure if, um, if you learn a craft and when he was when he said that, I, I was like, I knew this was gonna happen. I just knew it. So after he said that, I was kind of depressed. So I went to college in electronics and computers because he did electronics. So I took a class, I took um a career in um in electronics and computers. And the name of the program, the whole the entire program that I learned that I went to. At Vanier College, it was it was called digital system technology. Okay. So we learned how to program computers and how to do electronics. Okay. I'll do robots. I'll spend nights um, programming, learning softwares like C Turbo Pascal, yeah. Basic, Unix, all the big software language, machine yeah. machine language, you know. Yeah. And so every night for three years, I was programming. So I didn't have time to um to practice my music. So when I graduated, I got a call from the school and they said there's this um job that's looking for, for a gra- somebody who just graduated to design printed circuit boards. You know the circuits in your computers. Right. So so they're designing they're designing circuit boards using the computer. So I went for the interview. And after the interview, two days later, I got the call from the from the boss, and he said, "Steve, you're hired. You you're, you can start on Monday." Right. So I started working as a PCB designer, printed circuit board designer. Okay. So the checks I was I was I was um I was making I was getting, I started building. I started buying equipment. Right. My first piece of equipment I bought was a, a sample a sixteen the Insonic sixteen plus sampler. Okay. And I already had my computer from from school that I was using, right? And I bought um, 
I bought a MIDI, a MIDI interface. Okay. All right. And I had a four track that I, that I already had. Um, I had a four track, a Tascam 246 um, four track recorder. Okay. So that's, that's how I started, you know, making beats. Right. And from there, that's how I learned how to engineer as well. Reading electronic music, musician magazine every single month. Oh wow! That's so you you didn't have any formal training. You learned this kind of okay. Yeah, that's every month. I'd go ahead and go buy the magazine and read it in in like in few hours, and then I would have a headache and fall asleep in my mom's room. Then I would wake up and read again to review to reread the stuff that I didn't understand. And that's where I learned about compression, EQs, um, reverbs. So I, that's how I learned how to engineer. Right. So was, was Pro Tools out at this point? Or nah, was, nah, was nah. all analog still? All analog. That was in 91. Okay, gotcha. Um, at that time, I think Upcode was out. Okay. On on the Mac on the small Macintosh computer. Right, right. That was state of the art. That was the pre-Pro Tools. Oh, okay. I never heard about that. Okay, I learned something new today. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was called Upcode, yeah. And there was... um. That's the time Atari had a computer for music as well. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like state of the art, yeah. you know? So that's how I got into production. Wow. And from there, what happened is um, I was in New York, and my dad had a recording session in Long Island. And, and uh, when I got to the studio... I saw the engineer had plaques on his wall. Mm-hmm. He had an EPMD plaque and it was a gold plaque. Mm. And I was like, I was like, wow, this is a beautiful plaque. How do you how did you get that? He said, Well, I'm in the music business. I said, Yeah, but how did you manage to get that plaque? He said, Well, this is how it works. He said, When you sell over 500,000 units, you get a gold plaque. When you sell over 1 million units, you get a platinum plaque. I said, okay, but how did you manage to get into the music business and to have that on your wall? He was like, you know what, Steve? Just send me a demo. If you have a demo, I'll see, I'll help you out to get into the music business. I was like, all right, bet. Well, I didn't say bet because that word didn't exist at that time. I said, all right, no problem. <laughs> we got to follow the timeline. <laughs> so, so I went back to Montreal with my dad. That was in... um. I think December, um, June, June 91. All right. No, June 92. So in, in January 93, I go back to New York with a demo that I, that I did on my four track. Okay. And I was singing on all songs. I did the production. My dad played the bass. I did the drums on my TR-505, my, my Roland TR-505 drum machine that my dad bought, bought me when I was 16. Okay. So I had a four, uh, uh, four song demo. So I went to New York and that was in January, 1993. So on the radio, all the songs that were playing that were hot, I'd go, I'd go to HMV and buy all the CDs. Okay. But behind every CD, all I saw was ex- Uptown Records, yeah. executive producer, um, Andre Harrell, associated executive producer, Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Yeah. On every CD, it was Mary, either it was the 411, Mary J, the Blue Funk by Heavy D, Jodeci's first album, 
Christopher Williams first album, first CD. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, Father MC. Yeah. So I'm like, who's this Puff Daddy Combs? <laughs> so I wrote the address, and I went downtown, and I went to Uptown Records. I was in a suit because, mind you, I didn't know anything about the music business. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, before that, so when I got back to New York, I called the guy who said he was he was gonna help me out. Right. So he didn't. He wouldn't answer. He wasn't answering my calls. So I was like, you know what? I can't wait for anyone yeah. to make my dreams come true. Yeah. So that's when I took took it upon myself to go to Uptown Records. So I go down to Uptown Records in Manhattan. And I walk inside, and the lady, which was Kim Porter, oh, mm, rest in peace. That's the peace, Kim Porter. Yeah. yeah. And she says, um, how, yes, how can I help you? I said, my name is Steve Pajot, and I have a meeting with Puff Daddy Combs. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she looks into... Um, into um her, into the book, like, and, your not there. and my name's not there. And then <laughs> she says, "Um, I don't see your name." I said, "Can you please um check again?" So she she's flipping the pages, and I'm like, "I already know my name's not in there, so we can spend all day looking." You know what I mean? Right. But I had a, a straight poker face, right? You know? And then she says, "Excuse me, I really don't see your name." And I go and I go, "What?" Oh my God, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I said, I said, I called last week and I spoke to somebody and they said, come Monday and you'll have a meeting with Puff Daddy. I said, I just got off the plane. Do I look stupid? I, I've just paid $300 for my plane ticket. It's snowing. I just got off the plane from Canada. I said, oh my God. So I made a whole scene. <laughs> and then, and then, um, what's his name again? Oh. Jeff Burrows, Jeff Jeff Burrows. All right, I didn't know his name at the time. Yeah. So, a young man opened the door. Then he said, "What's the problem? What's the problem?" That was a that's the guy. From, that's the guy who used to manage New Edition, right? No, that's the guy who used to manage um, Mary J. He was working. Oh. At, he was working at um, he was working at at up at Uptown Records also. Okay, okay. Jeff, I think it was Jeff Burrows. It's not Kurt. Yeah, Jeff Broaddles, yeah. So he said, calm down, calm down. Come back tomorrow, and I'll make sure you get a meeting with Puff Daddy. I said, oh, thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. So the next day, I come back. I go back to Uptown Records. My meeting was at 1 o'clock. So from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock, I'm sitting in the lobby just looking at, looking at, um, at Kim Porter. Cause that's all that's all I was able to do. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is the type of woman they have in the music industry. Oh, I really want to come in, be in the music industry. Because I saw all types of pretty women walking, walking in and out. Right. I was like, this is the lifestyle. I was like, oh man. Right. So at five o'clock, somebody walks me in. So I'm walking to um, so they walk me inside um to Puffy's office. So as I'm walking in, I see a big size poster of Mary J. Blige of the 411 album. And I hear a remix playing. And I felt so good because I'm like, yo, this is some exclusive stuff. You know what I mean? So at five o'clock, so after a while sitting in the office, 
this this young lady who says, um, um, my son is in music business. He really loves it. He's very young, but I didn't know who she was talking about. And so at six o'clock, this young dude walks in. So mind you, I'm thinking Puffy is, he's like 50 years old with a cigar, a white dude, executive. You know what I mean? Oh, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having. So at six o'clock, this young dude comes up to me and he says, um, yeah, what's up? How can I help you? I said, I'm here to see Mr. Mr. Puff Daddy Combs. He said, yeah, that's me. So it, it, ups, it threw off my whole, my whole vibe. Right. He's a young kid now. He's what, 19, 20? As I'm looking at him, I'm, say, I'm saying he's a young kid. He was 22, yeah. just like me. Right. I'm like, what? Like, I'm like, this, we're the same age. That's, he's Puff Daddy Combs. He's the one behind every single CD. So it threw me off. So I gave him my cassette. It was a TDK. That's when his phone rings. So he's talking on the phone and my music is playing. So then he gets off the phone and he presses fast forward and he gets back on the phone. Next thing you know, the tape reaches the end and then he gets off the phone, takes the cassette out and he like, like he didn't throw it, but he just slid the tape. So it started spinning and it stopped right on the edge of the table. And I looked at him like with my mouth open. I was like, it was the longest five, five seconds. Cause I'm thinking, all I'm thinking is I'm in the building. What's next? What do I do next? You know what I mean? Right. Then he said, then I said, can you help me? Is there something I can do that you can do for me? He said, yeah, you can go around the corner and, um, and, um, and get get yourself a meeting and i was like oh man so i'm walking out his office like i'm walking slowly thinking that he's gonna be like yo let me let me come back come back come back so i'm walking slowly 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 so i so i'm at i'm at the door and i don't hear no steve you come back and i'm walking out the office and i'm like oh that's that's it's it's the end of that so as I'm walking out, I hear party and bullshit. I'm like, yo, who's that? Who's that guy? Who's that? Who's that rapping? And the guy goes, oh, that's Biggie Smalls. He's coming out. He's this song is coming out in two weeks. I'm like, wow. And that's how I got. That's that was my first encounter in the music business. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a story. What a story, man. So but it continues though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah. So obviously, you know, so this is this is 93. Right? Yeah, 93. 93. Yeah. So obviously that doesn't that doesn't have that doesn't that first encounter get any kind of but it doesn't go the way you want to go. So so what's the next step for you? What's the next move that you decided to do? So you, you stay in New York or you go back to Canada or what did, no. So the next move, the next step is um I went back to I had to go back to um to Canada. It was that was right before um the World Trade Center blew up the first time. The bomb, you remember in 93? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I went back to I went back to Montreal because I had an audition to do at McGill University. Like that's one of the biggest um music school in Canada. Okay. You know, so I had to, um, so I went back to Montreal and all the CDs that, that I bought, what I would do is listen, I would compare them, my music 
to the music that was playing in New York with all the CDs that I bought. So I wanted to see why why Puffy didn't didn't they didn't like my music or didn't did didn't take my music. Mm-hmm. And um so I've noticed the my mix and the mix on these CDs were very different. You know, in New York at that time it was very aggressive, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the mix, the mix will reflect the lifestyle of of the lifestyle of 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 the city right so the jodeci albums you felt the bass and the drums were right in your face right you know same thing with christopher williams same thing with um the blue funk album by by heavy d right and when i and when i listened to my mixes everything was like the kick wasn't coming out the snare wasn't coming out the bass you could hardly hear the bass so what I'll do every night before going to sleep, I would, I would, I would sleep. I would put the headphones and put put this put a CD in my disc player, my disc man, mm-hmm. my portable disc player. And the next morning, all this, all that information stayed in my subconscious. Mm-hmm. So what I would do, I would sa- I sampled all the snares of every song, all the kick and snares. So the drums gave me that New York sound. Right. You know what I mean? So all I did, so what so the only thing I had to do is mimic, mimic the type of music that was being produced in New York. Okay. So I would take the same chords, but change the bass line. You know, just add different, different music arrangements, but with same with the same drums. So I started doing that. And people in Montreal, all the artists came to me and they were like, wow, you got you got that New York sound. But they didn't understand. I didn't give them the secret. I didn't give them the special sauce. You know what I mean? So the trick was to to sample. It was the combination of his mixes and the mixes in New York that I combined together. So, so f- f- to fast forward, all right. In '97, I go back to New York, and not, no, no, 90, '96, I go back to New York with uh, with four hundred dollars. So what happened is all the mixing. And all the all the artists I was charging, I was charging eighty dollars at that time. So after six months, I had I had saved a thousand dollars. Right. So when I converted that money to um, American currency, after buying my Greyhound bus ticket, I was left with four hundred dollars. Okay. All right. So so I had a plan. I said I'm gonna go to New York, but I'm not gonna tell my parents that I'm moving. Because I already know that situation from the first time. So I told him I'm going to spend a couple months in New York. But I already knew I was going to move to New York. You know, you know what I mean? Right. And so I go to New York. I go to New York and I, I got a job working at, at a blockbuster. Uh-huh. It was a friend of the family who hooked me up with a management, management position. So I started, I worked there for like nine months. So one day this kid gets transferred into my, into my store. 
And he says, Steve, I know these dudes from, from Harlem, they're in the music business. And I was like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Just uh, go, put back those, those tapes on the shelves and, and make sure you make sure you know that your area stays clean. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then he was like, nah, nah, for real, for real. He says, I'm here's the number, their number. The reason why I'm telling you all this, because the vision I had, it all mapped out to the way the situation went. All right. 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 So I go to Harlem, I meet these guys. So I go, I go to Harlem, I meet these guys, and right. and and they love my music. So six months later, we at Sony's producing this artist called Michelle. She was on Relativity Records. And the same night that I'm producing, that I'm tracking the song, this young dude walks in. And Awanda Booth, who was the A&R at Relativity, she says, um, Steve, this is Ron Lawrence. He's the one who has the new hit single, Hypnotized by Biggie, for Biggie. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. So we exchanged phone number. All right? right? We exchanged phone number. So then two months later, two months later, um, there was a fallout with the crew I was working with. Oh, okay. And one of, one of the producers, mind you, these producers... Every day they're crying broke. So I was giving them money. You know, in New York, the way we do, whoever has money, we look out for the rest of the crew. Right. So because I, I had a steady job working at Blockbuster, so it was easy for me to, you know, when the crew didn't have it, I would give them money. You know what I mean? Right. For gas yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And so one day I see them buying jewelry and I didn't understand how they got that money. So two weeks later, one of the producers was part of the camp. He was like, Steve, have you, you haven't seen that? You haven't noticed that they've been buying jewelry? I said, yeah. I said, where did he get the money? They said, you remember that, you remember that session you had at, at Sony? I said, yeah, well, that's, the, that's your money they're spending. So when I approached them with the situation, about the situation, all hell broke loose. So they kicked me out the studio. At that time, I was living in the studio in Harlem. So they, they kicked me out. I lost my... A sampler they kept the sampler cops came and they're like because you didn't sign the paper whatever was in there belongs to them oh wow so my phone number my 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 phone book that had my phone book that had ron's number was in there also so one day i'm i'm, I'm crossing the street on 44th street because that's where uh, daddy's house was and that's right. where i used to hang out so who i see walking towards me ron lawrence I said, yo, Ron, I lost the number. Can I please get it? So he's giving his number. So I wrote the number down. So a few weeks later, I, I started calling him. Mm -hmm. And I would never get a response. Every time I would call him, I said, yo, Ron, I play the flute. I'd love to play the flute on some of your records. And he's like, so he, I would never get any response from Ron. So one day I go back to Harlem. And I'm and I'm and I had a meeting with Michelle, the girl I had the session with at Sony back right. in March. Right. And I and I said I keep calling Ron, but he never answers his phone. He never he never replies. He said and she said, so what do you tell him when you when you call him? I said, well, I tell him I I play the flute. He's like Steve, those are beat makers. What what are they gonna do with, with your flute on their records? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> she said she she asked. She said, um, don't you play the, don't you play keyboards? I said, yeah. She said, so why don't you call him and tell him you play keyboards? I said, wow, that's smart. So the next day I call Ron. I said, yo, Ron, you know, I play keyboards. I love to play, you know, some keys on your, on your records. 
Within five minutes, guess who calls me back? Ron Lawrence. So I get a meeting with Ron. So we're in Manhattan driving his car, brand new BMW. Everybody in the car is, you know, dancing to my tracks. So after, after 10 minutes of driving in Manhattan, he stops the car and he says, um, I can't do anything with your tape. I need all your music to be on a dat, on a dat tape. I said, all right, cool, no problem. So that was January, no, that was um, November, no, November 97. So all the money I had made in, at, um, at Blockbuster, I had saved the money because my uncle said I didn't have to pay rent. So I had saved like $10,000 and I was getting unemployment also. So I bought me, at that time, it was um, the Roland, the Roland JV, JV 1080 that Bad Boy was using. Okay. So I bought that sound module at Samash. Okay. I go back to Montreal in December, in December 97. All right. So I need a drum machine. So I go to Steve's music store with $2,000 to buy an MPC. Mm. All right. So I see the MPC and it was $2,500. I go to the dude. I said, I only have $2,000. said, nah, I can, it's 2,500. So my dad says, let's, 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 let's just leave. So the same thing, I'm walking slowly. So walking slowly so that he could say, so yeah, well, how much you know, so he could call me back. So as I'm opening the door, he says, How much you said you had? I said, two thousand dollars. He said, You have your cash? I said, Yeah. I put the money on the counter. He said, All right, you can have it. So I go home with my MPC with my drum machine, with my MPC 2000 and my sound module. So now I'm ready to, to cook. Yeah. All right. January 98, I call Ron. I said, Ron, I'm ready. So during the month of December, I did like, I wasn't sleeping. My parents, everybody would go to sleep at five o'clock in the morning. I was still up till six o'clock in the morning. You know, what I was doing, I was taking the tracks that Stevie J was doing and re redoing my own tracks, sampling drums, like everything that was coming out of Bad Boy, I kind of mimicked the sound. So when I called Ron in January, I had 20 tracks, mixed, mastered and everything. No, they weren't mastered. They were all mixed on a dat tape. So I go to, I go to, I call Ron. I said, Ron, I'm ready. He said, um, when you come back to New York, let me know. So the next day I bought my Greyhound bus ticket. I meet up with Ron. The same night I meet up Ron. So he's in the studio listening to my music on a dat, on the dat, on, on dat machine. When, he's, when he was done, he turned around. He said, he looked at me and said, so what you want to do? I leaned back and I said, what do you want to do? And then he said, I want to sign you. And that's how I got in the game. Wow. Wow. So, so everything I had envisioned, I followed, I followed what 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 I envisioned. And before going to New York, I asked God to lead lead the way. You know, right. all this was just a plan, a vision, and God. And everything came to, to reality. You know. See, you know what I, you know what I love about your story, man, is that it's a story of perseverance. You know, the the journey in the music space. I tell this to artists all the time. It's unpredictable. Nobody can tell you how it's going to happen. Nobody no. can tell you. How, nobody can ever give you. You know, you've heard this term before. No two people in the music business come up the exact same way. Nobody. No. No two people. Everybody's journey is different. 
mm-hmm. every single person, and you're you could have easily given up in '93. They could have said, "I, I guess, I guess it's not for me. I go back to doing the engineering computer." But you're like, "No, nah, man, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep going." And and, and that that's a story for people who are listening to this podcast who are coming to the game now. There's so many things they can take away from that. In fact, of how bad do you want this thing? You know, uh-huh. what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to what are you willing to do in order to make it? What do you and, and, and it's a premise of relationships too. Mm-hmm. You drop so many gems just in that in, in that space, man. Man, that's Thanks. powerful. Thanks. Powerful, powerful. <laughs> um what else I got here. Um and we covered a lot of that. So all right, so you get with Ron mm-hmm. and now after about a year with him, now you start to make your, your way, right? And yeah. so like 99, and then that, that leads to the the, the, the record on, on Crazy Bones album, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So see, I, I did my research. See, I did my research. I see. <laughs> so, I see. you know, so, so tell me about how that happened and how you were able to work on that project. Okay. Um. So now I'm signed to Ron to a five-year contract. Okay. Right? So now wherever I'm going in New York, I keep dropping Ron's name without him knowing. Oh. Because <laughs> at that time, it's either you're rich or you had the girls. Okay. I was in rich, but, you know, I had the girls also. And, and I knew how to talk to people. Right. I was, you know, with my French accent, you know, everybody in New York was like very intrigued. Because my approach, my approach, my approach to people, it was different. Right. You know, it was I treated everybody like in a polite way. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Right. Which is in my, which is in my nature. Right. Like they weren't used to in New York. It's really straightforward. Yo, what's up? You know, it's blast. You understand what I'm saying? It's like right. a, it's like a kind of rough approach. Right. But I had a smooth approach. Not that their approach is wrong. It's bad. It's just that my approach was different. So I was willing to meet everybody in New York. So wherever I, w- I was I was going, I'll be like, yeah, I'm signed to Ron Lawrence. And you're like, oh, Ron Lawrence? Oh, yeah, bad boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come in, come in. So every party that I went to, I was never on the guest list. Everybody was like, yo, how did you get into this party? They didn't know I was using Ron's name. You know what I mean? And he doesn't know it. And he didn't know. So the first night Ron said, I want to sign you. He took me to Justin's. That was on 21st Street. That was Puffy's restaurant. Yeah. So when, when I walked inside Justin's, everybody I had seen on TV was in that same, same restaurant, in that restaurant. Mm-hmm. So And it was on a Tuesday night. And I heard it was industry night every Tuesday. So every Tuesday, if you didn't see me anywhere else in New York, you knew I was at Justin's. Okay. So one Tuesday night, I go to Justin's and there was a club right, right, right next to it. I'm across the street called Club Cheetah. Okay. So, so um, I'm in front of the door and the, the and um, the guy had the guest list. And he was like, what's your name? I said, my name is Steve Pajot. So he's looking at the guesses, same scenario. I already knew my name wasn't on the guest list. He was like, I don't see you. Yo, you said your name was what, Steve Pajot? 
I said, yeah. He said, I don't see your name on the guest list. I said, oh, I called this afternoon. I was in the studio, you know, working on some big project. You know, I'm down with them. Um, I was in the studio. He says, you're in the studio? I said, yeah, I called. And they said, don't worry. Come to the, come to, you know, you'll be on the guest list. And I said, by the way, I'm down with Ron Lawrence, bad boy. He said, oh, bad boy? Oh, Ron Lawrence? Oh, yeah, that's my man's in them. He said, walk in. Come in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> I'm in the club, you know, I walk in the club, who I see sitting in the cut, Mariah Carey, I see Buster Rhymes. So I'm like, oh my God, this is a lifestyle. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm on the dance floor dancing with this chick and this young, this dude comes up to me. He walks up to me, he was like, um, excuse me, my name is Duke Sanders and I love the way you maneuver, how you walk. How you um how you walked inside a club, how you maneuver to get inside a club. He said, I work for relativity. Here's my card. I said, All right, thank you very much. So I'm back back on the dance floor dancing. Two weeks later, I called him up and then I said, Yeah, Duke, um, this is Steve. We met. I, I think I called him a, a week later. I said, Um, you're the guy who approached me saying that you liked you liked how I got in, inside the party. He was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you, why don't you meet me, meet me in my office? So I went to his office and, and he told me what he was doing. He was working in the market on the marketing side at relativity. And, um, that's where fat Joe was. Um, I think fat Joe, um, um, what's the name again? Um, big pun, you know, um, all the, all the big artists from the South were signed to, um, relativity. So fast forward, so fast forward um a few months later, I go up. Duke was working at um Duke was working at a at a, um how you call that again? At a gym. So at that time, my advance money that I got from Ron was running out. So I was down to zero dollars. All right. So I go to Duke, I said, yo, man, I'm running out of money. And he said, um, I said, can you get me a job at the gym? He said, All right, no problem. So he gets me a gym he gets me a job at the gym. So I'm there answering the phones, you know, putting the weights back and everything. And the reason why I'm telling you all the details is so that people don't think it was a walk through the park. You understand what I'm saying? Right. There were a lot of obstacles. I didn't right. just go to New York and it all happened. It was, it was a very long, hard journey. Right. So that's why every instance of my journey, I cherish it. I don't take it for granted. Right. So, so that these new, so that the newcomers don't think, yo, it's just, it's very easy. It's not that easy. Right. So I'm working at the gym and one day, um, and a few months later, um, Duke says, um, Duke was, would come to my house every single day and tell me about the music industry, about relativity. So one day he says, um, um, Gangsta Boo is, uh, is looking for a remix. Gangsta Boo, she was signed to Relativity, a down south art artist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I did, so I did three tracks, and but the A and R didn't like the tracks. He wasn't feeling them. So two two months later, in January 1999, Duke goes up to me, says, "Um, um, Crazy Bone is gonna be at the Hit Factory on Wednesday." So he says, "That same track you gave me for Gangsta Boo, just just put them on on the deck." So that same night, so three nights, so on Wednesday night, I'm in the city in front of Justin's, everybody's on the block chilling. So we go to the hit factory. We walk inside the hit factory. 
and there was a lineup. Rodney Jerkins was playing the piano in front of me. I was next to him playing. He was playing. He wasn't playing for me, but he was just playing. Yeah. You know, people were singing, and I was right next to him. So there's all types of all, so many producers from New York were at the Hit Factory. Like I guess they were trying to get on that project. So it was our time, our turn to walk, to walk um, in in the studio. So I gave the I gave the dad to the manager. It was Steve Lobel. Mm. Josh, right. shout we, out we to working. Steve Lobel. We working. Yeah, we, we working. <laughs> yeah. So the engineer, so they start playing my track. So I played three tracks, but Crazy Bone kept on going to the first track, bobbing his head, playing, played play three times. So he said, all right, cool. So we walk out the studio. That was on a Wednesday night. All right. So as I'm walking out, I see Puffy, Puffy in the elevator like behind like behind a crowd and he saw me and he waved at me and i was like wow he remembers me you know so, what I mean? so, so, he, so you're thinking all the, you think about it back to 93 when you when you first you know yeah 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 and um but i guess he had heard that i was signed to ron lawrence you understand what i'm saying right so because i was signed to ron yeah. lawrence i was a, i was affiliated with bad boy so i was out i was around the bad boy crew every right. almost every single day Right. Um, so that's a Wednesday night. On the following Sunday, I'm at the gym, all depressed. You know, I'm broke. You know, I, I can't see the, f- I don't know what's going to happen. So I see Duke on the phone walking, talking on the phone. He says, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. He hangs up the phone. He says, Steve, that was Steve LaBelle. Crazy Bone loved the track. They want us to be in, in LA tomorrow. I said, Duke, man, this is not the time to be playing with me. I'm not in. I'm not in the mood for jokes. He said, "Steve, that was Steve Lobel on the phone tomorrow. We gotta go to L.A." I said, "Where?" He said, "Yeah, next." So I'm still not believing. So I go. He said, "Steve, go home, pack up. I'll come and get you at six o'clock in the morning." So I'm packing up. Next morning, he's at the door. We go to the. We go into the city. I see Steve Lobel, and. And next thing you know, we going, we're in the limousine going to the airport. I'm still not believing. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, I'm on the plane. I'm, I'm like, oh, maybe it is true. We land in LA from, from the plane. We go from the airport. We go straight to Studio 56. As I'm walk, as I'm tracking the song, I see KG, the DJ, the producer from Naughty by Nature. Right. I'm, ch- I'm chopping up with Steve Lobel. So I'm tracking the track. Next day, Crazy Bone. Here's the track. He leaves, so I start playing the flute on the hook. So he comes back, and he hears the song, and that's how he got the hook by listening to my flute. So now I got the hook and and the verse. But before he laid the hook, he started on the third bar, and I, and I'm like I'm telling everybody, yo, he was supposed to start on the fifth bar, and and they're like, yo, you the producer. Tell him. I said, no, that's crazy, Bone. You crazy? So they're like, yo, tell him. So I pressed the button, the microphone mm-hmm. on the board. And I was like, um, crazy, Bone? <laughs> Can you please start on the fifth bar? <laughs> My <laughs> voice was shaking. And he was like, all right, no problem. And that's when I became became a producer. Wow. So before, that- that, before that, I was a beat maker. And, 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 
can you tell the people, man? I've talked about this many times, but what's the difference between a beat maker and a producer in your eyes? How you would define it? Okay, the beat maker is the one who does the beat. All right, yeah, yeah. like he does, he puts all the components together, and he makes the beat. The producer is the one that hears the beat, and he can tell if the if the if the music needs arrangements. Um. He's the one who's gonna, who's able to put all the musicians together to recreate the sound. And he's the one also who has the vision of where the song should sound like and coaching the singer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you're in the studio and you're not the one telling the singer how to sing, giving the singer the harmonies, telling the singer, oh no, why don't try it this way? You're not a producer. Because right. I could be, because somebody can send me a beat and I didn't have nothing to do with the beat, but I'm producing the record. Like Puffy, he doesn't know how to, he, do, he doesn't know how to touch a, a MPC. I mean, he doesn't know nothing about anything about the MPC, but he can, he knows how to make the record sound hot. Right. So that's the difference between a producer and a beat maker. And that's how I got on, on the Crazy Bone project. Wow. That ended, and that ended up going platinum. And it ended up going platinum. I had and Snoop, so, on, I had Snoop so on the record. Snoop on the record. So I heard Snoop was in town and I told Steve LaBelle, I said, Steve, I heard Snoop is in town. And I would love to have Snoop on the record. So next day, I come back to the studio, and Steve Lobel says, we're going to see Snoop. I said, what? What you mean we're going to see Snoop? He says, yeah, I, 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 got the, I got the address. So we go to see Snoop, and, when I, and we walk inside the studio. Who I see playing Nintendo? Snoop Dogg. <laughs> so all I'm thinking about is, no, no, all I'm thinking is, yeah, you know, yeah. all the death row, you know, ad-libs he would be saying. And for 15 minutes, I'm like watching Snoop Dogg reminiscing about the death row days. And he walks up to me and he walks up to us and he goes, what's up? You know, yeah. I, was so, I was so starstruck. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't even say a word. I let Steve LaBelle was talking. While he was talking, my mouth stayed open like, oh my <laughs> God, that's Snoop Dogg in front of me. And that's how Snoop... Snoop got on the record and then Corrupt and Lazy Bone got, got on the record. And it came out in April, April 1999. And two months later, it went platinum. Actually, this a few days ago, May 20th, the 22nd anniversary of the release of that project. Oh, man. That's awesome. I and, I, and, I, and I think about what you said before. When you went to the studio for that first time, you asked the guy, you saw the plaques, like, how do you get that plaque, right? Yeah. And fast forward, I don't know what, 10 plus years later after that, whatever it was, now you now you have a, now you're part of a Grammy, um, award. Is that, that was nominated or that, that won a Grammy? That was nominated or won a Grammy? Platinum status. That was platinum. Yeah, that was platinum, yeah. that was platinum, yeah. So, then you go from having a platinum uh, record and you're thinking back, like, man, like years back, I thought, how do you get to that? And you you achieve that. So everything you wanted to achieve is happening. Like, 
c'est vrai dans le jus. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, 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 I can hear you. Okay, okay. So I'm saying everything, everything that um that you want to achieve, like you said, is happening. Like yes, it, everything. It, I mean, like literally, like it's like it's like wow, wow. That's awesome. Everything's happening. So yeah, everything is happening. So after that, you realize, okay, I, I want to expand. You want to expand into more musicianship. So you learn to I was playing several more instruments, and then that that ended up you end up being able to start doing getting a bunch of jingle credits, right? How did how did that happen? So the jingle credits happened, and you started working with, with some big, some more major recognizable brands around it, around um, around America. Yeah. But before 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 the jingles, um, I was working heavily with Ron. Okay. All right. So Ron had created a system. He said, um, "Steve, I'm going to start inviting writers from all over the country, so to record to come 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 demo songs. Okay. So we can get some placements. I was like, bet I'm all in. So every single day." So during the week, I'll be sleeping, I'll spend the night every single night at Ron's house. And during the weekends, sometimes I'll probably go home. So I'll take all my clothes so I can spend, you know, to have enough clothes um, to stay at Ron's house. So I had my own room. He was living in a mini mansion. Nice house. Okay. So every day, all types of the writers were coming in. It was like a factory. When I was done with Ron Ryder, while I was working with one singer, Ron had other singers in the, in the next room. So every song we'd finish, I would finish on um, produce. Every demo we'd finish, I would mix it and then pass on, go on to the next. You know, mm -hmm. who, who else came? So um, a lot of big names came. Um, Don Robinson from In Vogue came through. You know, the, some of the biggest writers. But there was this Ron, so every month we're doing like 40 songs. Okay. So the word got around that Ron was putting out all these, um, we're demoing all like so many songs a month. So wherever I, would, I was going, they were like, yo, Steve, I heard, I heard you in there with Ron playing, you know, recording work. And I was like, yeah, sessions would start at eight o'clock at night and end at six o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's where I built my endurance and mm -hmm. Ron trusted me so much. So sometimes he wasn't even in the studio. He was upstairs, you know, handling business. But he had he had he had his trust in me. So I made sure that everything was going according to plan. Right. And and I, I always wanted to look good in front of Ron. You understand what I'm saying? I never wanted to disappoint him. So everything I was doing was done to the highest level. Right. So that nobody could say, oh, Steve messed up on the mix, or Steve messed up on the recording. And so one of the songs we had done for this artist was signed to Columbia Records. She took a while, she took too long to give us, on, to tell us if she was gonna take the record or not. So Ron managers, Ron's manager gave it to um, Alan Molina at that time was managing Ron, New Heights Entertainment. So they had a good relationship with um, Arista, with all the labels. So okay. they gave that song to um, L.A. Reid, who was the CEO at Arista. Right. L.A. Reid heard the song. He loved it. He gave it to Aretha. Aretha mm. heard it. She recorded it. So the song comes out. 
on on uh, so damn happy album in September 2003. The following month, we hear the single "Wonderful" is nominated for a Grammy. Mm. So before that, I was walking around New York telling everybody, "I'm a I'm a platinum producer." You know, you know, out that that's how that was the word in New York. Yo, Steve's a platinum producer. Mm. When I heard it was the song was nominated for a Grammy, then I started walking around all over New York. I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a nominated Grammy, Gra- Grammy, um, Grammy, um, producer, engineer, producer. Right. So, so February 1990, February 2004, I'm watching the Grammys, the pre-telecast, and it says previously won Aretha Franklin for Wonderful. So, and that's how we won the Grammy for, 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 for Aretha Franklin with Aretha Franklin. Oh man, wow. The Queen of Soul, man. The like, Queen of Soul. Like, wow. Like, talk about legendary. Talk about who can who can say that they worked with Aretha Franklin. And now, now, no. now I've heard this story. Is it true that when she walks into the room that you have to turn around and face the wall? Have you heard that before? Um no, 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 no. So I, the I story was I heard that on her writer. I don't even know her writer. It said that <laughs> when she came in the room, you had to turn her face, and she didn't want nobody to look at her as she was walking. I heard some, I heard some crazy thing about that. I don't know if it's true. I just heard that. It's not. I heard that story, but it's not her. It's another artist. I forgot who it was. Oh, okay. It's not Aretha. Oh, okay. I heard the same story. Oh, it's okay. A, it's a different. It's, okay. Oh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not. Is it Prince? I think it's Prince. I don't know who it was. I just remember well, somebody I, telling, well, telling you know, me that. You know what? I don't say it's Prince, and you know, I don't know. But yeah. I heard the story. Okay, so I'm not crazy. I heard the story. You, you heard the same it's story that. too. Okay. Yeah, I heard the same story. <laughs> Interesting. <heard> story. Interesting, <laughs> man. Man, see, wow, that's awesome. And so, and so then you um then you you start to realize, man. The sick licensing game is where it's at TV and film now, right? So now exactly. we're getting into the TV and film space. And talk to me about how you got started that, how how that has kept you afloat. When sometimes okay. the artists get the music placements and artistry, because I think nowadays, you know, nowadays especially with streaming and how it is now, place getting songs with artists these days is. It's not as lucrative anymore like it used to be when the days of the album and the days where you could make twenty, thirty thousand dollars a song just for the filler, not even for the single, just for mm-hmm. an album cut, you know. Right. So I think nowadays the sync spaces where a lot of you guys are able to consistently have money coming in or residually and, and and talk to me about how that's helped impact your career. All right. So the way I got into that industry. One day, one night, I was at Soul Cafe. That was on um, on Forty Second Street. That's where everybody was going on Wednesday nights. Okay. So I meet this girl. I met this girl. Somebody introduced me to this young lady who was working at Arista, also. And within five minutes, I was able to sell myself. I told her I was a composer, and I produced tracks also. And she says, oh, you're a composer. Did you say you're a composer? I said, yeah. She says, oh, a good friend of mine called Wendell Haynes does, does jingles. 
And if you want, I can introduce you to him. I said, oh yeah, sure. So she gave, so, um, she gave me his contact. The following day, I called her up, I sent her an email and she, and she replied back. She says, um, here's my friend, my friend's contact. His name is Wendell Haynes. Right. Tell him that I referred you. Right. So, I, so I called Wendell Haynes. I said, um, this young lady told me about you. She said, you'll be a, a great person to, to meet with, to meet. So I got, I go to, um, his, his studio was on eight, 18th street. So I go to his studio. I start playing my my tracks, my composition tracks mm-hmm. as a composer, and my records. Mm-hmm. And there was this Walt Disney um, piece that I had I had created, and he was impressed because after I finished playing my tracks for records, I played him this classical composition I had made. Right. And 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 he was impressed, and that's how I got in the game. So he took me under his wing. And he taught me how to make music for TV. So he he would tell me, Steve, when it comes to TV, you got 60 seconds or 30 seconds to put all the content. It's not like making records where you got the intro that will last a minute, then then the pre-hook, then the hook, then back to the second verse. He he said, you got to captivate the listeners and... The, the viewers because right. it's the music that's going to sell the product right because without the music you can't sell the product right so every day i would go i'll go to the studio he would put me on sessions and that's how i started making music that's how i started making um creating music for jingles so one day a friend of mine so so mind you i'm getting this training from wendell haynes Mm-hmm. I had another friend who was in the music industry. He said, Steve, I have an artist and I would love for you to um, see if you can do something with them. And so I spent six months working with the artist. And because I gave him, gave him a solid, one day he read one of my um, articles in, in Remix Magazine. I was talking about jingles. And he read, he read the article. He was like, Steve, why don't you send me your bio? And I'll see what I can do. I sent him my bio. He was working at MTV as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I sent him my bio. And within two weeks, he gave me a blank. He gave me a contract. He said, Steve, I got your hookup at MTV at Viacom. Mm. Just send, send all your music and you'll be ready to, to get in the system. So I sent all my music. No, no, no. I sent my music first. And next thing you know, I get, I get, I get this big contract from Viacom. And that's how I got in, in, in the Viacom building. And from there, I started licensing my music on all the biggest shows on MTV, VH1, all the networks. Nice. And I've been licensing my music since 2005. Wow. So call, that... Yeah, I call it mailbox money. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. Though. Trust me, I bet those checks come in right when you need them, too. Like, damn, like... It's about to be a little dry this morning. <laughs> and, the, 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 you know. <laughs> and, and at that time, not too many people knew about the licensing. So I was doing it on the low without telling people. Yeah. And 10 years later, that's when people started started catching up yeah. to the game. 
But yeah. I was already 10 years ahead. Yeah, yeah, ahead. So you had a lot of those relationships with the supervisors. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the big yeah. supervisors from Hollywood, some of them I would never meet, would just talk on the phone or through to emails. Yeah, and that's usually so how yeah, that's usually how it is. You know, I you know, a lot of them you don't ever meet them in person, but you know, right. As long as you can deliver the quality product, man, that's so important because that is a whole nother revenue stream that allowed you to continue to do what you need to do when sometimes, you know, because the thing with the thing with TV and film is that it, it's 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 no great. It's either hey, this works or this doesn't work. Right. Yeah, exactly. With, 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 with artists, there's always a creative space, gray area where like, OK, yeah, you know, we can make this thing work. But the TV and film, you, you have and they have, those songs have to be ready to go. By the way, they, I always tell people you can't pitch demos. They got to be fully master quality, ready to go, you know, because and you only get one chance sometimes to impress somebody. Exactly. And if exactly. you screw that up. <laughs> exactly. And and the thing about. Um, the licensing game, you don't have two months a week to make oh, a right. You got right. one, you got one day. Right. Or if they call you at nine o'clock for, for a song, you better have it by the afternoon. <laughs> right. Because they have they have somebody else yeah. ready to take your spot. Right. It's right. a it's a competing environment. Right. Right. Like you gotta drop whatever you're doing. <laughs> you know to provide to, to to give to you know to give the records in no nah, that's definitely true and i think a lot of that side too bro is that understanding this is what the importance of understanding the business side of music mm-hmm. right copyrights intellectual property because i always tell people there's three sides of the industry right there's three sides of music there's the music industry right mm-hmm. which is record labels publicists stylists, influencers, tastemakers, that type of deal. That's the industry. And then you've got the music business, which is commerce, right? Yeah. You've got the business, the, the business side of music, the business, and that's intellectual property. Yeah. And so it's so important for creatives to understand the business side of music if they want to make a living doing this. You know, take the time to study and learn what copyright law means and all this type of stuff, even stuff you don't need attorneys for. There's some of the stuff you don't need to have a lawyer for. You just there's stuff you can learn on your own and be, you know, know what uh, know what a licensing agreement looks like. You know, exactly. a lot of them are, and a lot of the stuff is simple. And you don't need an attorney to negotiate a licensing agreement for you. No, no. <laughs> like, know? like what I tell people: if you want to become a doctor, you go to med school. Right. If you want to become a lawyer, you go to law school. Right. So if you want to be in the music business, you got to learn the business side of the music industry, of the right. music business. So before before I went into the music business, I read the book called All You Need to Know About the Music Business. I read it five times. Right. So by the time Ron gave me his contract, I was familiar with every word in the right. contract. Wow. And while I was reading that book, every word I didn't understand, I, would, I had a dictionary next to me. Right. So I can look up every single word I didn't understand. Right. So when I was getting these contracts from, from MTV, I didn't have to, I didn't have to um, 
call any attorney because I knew what I was reading. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Right. So I knew the business inside out. And every single day, till this day, I'm reading. Yeah, because it's changed now. The whole it's changed. It's changed. The industry's changed now. So you have to, you know, this thing changes every three to six months. Something different is out. Something yep. new is out. You know, Clubhouse wasn't around. It was around, but Clubhouse wasn't the thing six months ago. No. It's the thing now. You know what I mean? <laughs> So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, man, the, the business side of the, and for some reason, you know, creatives don't, there's a lot of creatives out here, you know, I want to get your take on this. You know, there's creatives. See, I'm the type of person when I teach independent artists is the ability, why they should build a community. It's no longer about building a wide audience. It's now about building a core audience that you grow with that you know that 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 love you right yep. and so when you can do that you know you can make a really good living off a small amount of people mm-hmm. right but what i'm finding out more and more now is that there's a lot of creators out here that just want to be art they don't even want nothing to do with the business and it, it's unfortunate to me it's like and they're wanting a record the only the only way they see success is through a major, they want to be a major pop star. And of course you need a major record company to do that. That's the only way you can do it, you know? But for the majority of the artists in the marketplace today, the only way they're ever going to, ever going to be able to make a living is they have to have that, that, that core solid audience, you know? So, and it goes back to also learning, knowing the business, knowing the business side of music, as well as being able to, to build your audience. So it's right. The fact that you took the time to learn the business is so key. And again, it's a testament to why you're still successful 20 plus years later in the industry. You're still doing this and making a living doing it. Thank you, thank you. And the thing also about about um, this new generation, you see back in the day, we had to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Now the internet makes it easier. So a lot of people, everybody wants to be Diddy, but nobody wants to be Puff Daddy. You see, Diddy is the one you see shining. Everybody wants instant gratification. Right. Nobody wants to go through the trenches as like Pub Daddy. You know right. what I'm saying? Two different people. Two different, Two different people. people. Right. So right. in order, if you really want to be like Diddy, you got to be Puff Daddy also. First, right, right. First. Exactly. You know? So exactly. it's like, it's a different mindset to, to these days. Oh, you, you're definitely right about that. You're definitely right about that. Something I saw that was cool on your bio too, man. So take me back to the one of Clifton Park days. I think um, for me, being and I'm 35, so at the height of one of Clifton Park, I was just starting high school and that one. But that was like the black TRL for the kids that don't know the kids the kids that don't know about you know one of Clifton Park now. I mean that was because you didn't have social media, you didn't have those things. So that was a space that kids from kids one culture who want to see kids that look like them every yeah. day after school <laughs> you watch 106 in park you yep. know and, and you had a chance to be i'm pretty sure i'll probably watch an episode or two probably even know it was you on there <laughs> as a judge <laughs> back them days you know but talk to me about your experiences on 106 in park and how was that how how how, how that was because that was that was a that was a a great show for me. I always tuned in every every day at six o'clock. Yeah. 
All right, so let me tell you how I, how I got to be on 106 in Park. Okay. So you remember I told you I was working at the gym? Okay. So there was this young young dude by the name of Pat Charles. He would come he would come and work out at the gym. But at that time he was working for Rolling Stones magazine. Okay. So that was in 99. So, so my first time at 106 in Park, it was in 2005. So one day I see him on the bus with me. And I was like, hey, Pat, what are you doing in this neighborhood? Because at that time I was living in, in West New York, mm-hmm. you know, um, right across the river mm-hmm. from Manhattan, West New York, New Jersey. So I see him on the bus with me and I'm like, oh, what, what are you doing? You live here now? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, um, so... So you still work at um, you still work at um, at, for Rolling Stones. He's like, nah, nah. I work for BET. He says, um, so he's 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 the main writer for BET. I was like, oh, that's nice. He said, um, so what you doing? I said, oh, I'm producing. You know, I'm I'm down with Ron Lawrence and everything. And then he says, um, then he said, um, um, I can get you on on the show. I was like, what show? He says, you know, as a judge on 106 in Park. He says, send me a bio. Because he had asked me what I did. Um, mm-hmm. The things I said, I won a Grammy, you know, um, Crazy Bone, Bone Thugs and everything. He said, so send me a bio. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you become a judge. So I sent him my bio. Two days later, I get this letter from BET, from 106 in Park. They said, um, we'd like to invite you to be the next judge on, 106, on Freestyle Friday. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Freestyle Friday was on BT, and the name of the show was 106 in Park. And right, every right. Friday, there will be a contender, right? like unknown MC, unknown right. rapper, who would right. compete. So after four weeks or after five weeks, if he would win, he would go on to the next challenge. Yeah. And, and whoever he would, every challenge he would win for all the four weeks, he would battle the next rapper. Right. And, and that's how I got on 106 in Park. And I got on there, I, I think I did four times. Oh, nice. Four times on 106 in Park. And that gave me so much, um, um, so much exposure. Okay. Like even back home, people were calling me saying, yo, Steve, we saw you on 106 in Park. You made it. <laughs> yo, you the, you the man. And I didn't realize that people back home were watching the show also. Right. And that opened so many doors for me also. Okay, cool. What type of doors did it, what type of doors were open for you as, as, as a result of that? It opened doors as endorsements because nice. people, because of the manufacturing companies saw that I had, I had um, exposure. So they knew if they would put a brand, associate a brand with my name, a lot of people would 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 um it would convince people to go to go buy their products and i started judging more more um more competitions like um um mr atkins you know what i mean he would right. invite me every year to be a judge on on for his um for on his panels okay you know um jeffrey 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 atkins right Jesse, Jesse Atkins, Jesse Atkins. Oh, okay, I got yeah, okay. Yeah, 
Yeah, the guy that we did our first connected with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. And it opened so many doors for me. Yeah, man, that that's that's great because all yeah, all those eyeballs, people seeing you, man, definitely, man. That's what's up. That's what's up, man. And then what I love too is that, man, you were slated to work on a final studio album for Michael Jackson. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, when you got the call for that, how would what was what, what was going through your mind with you know with, with that? Talk to me about that. Well, that was imp- that was very impressive. I mean, it was um, yeah, the call was very. It did. You know, it motivated me to work even more. Mm-hmm. But what happened is, it was a friend of the family of Michael Jackson of the Jacksons, who loved my music. Okay, and he. And he said that he was able to, he was going to get me on, on the last, to work with Michael Jackson. Right. So my name started bubbling within the camp, with, within the Michael Jackson camp. Okay. And it didn't materialize and he passed away. Yeah. But there were a few articles that came out and they had named, they had named me saying, um, Teddy Riley, Rodney Jerkins, and a new, and a new, New producer by the name of Steve Pajot was slated to work on new on the on the new Michael Jackson album, and but it never happened. But you know what? A few years later, I became good friends with Tito Jackson. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So see, see there you go. <laughs> it kind of all worked out. Oh man, man! Like you said, just just to even be in the in the in the in the in the room to be talked about. Is a blessing in itself, you know, because yeah. it lets you know like that you belong, right? Yeah, yeah. Not that you didn't already, not that you didn't already know you belong. I feel, I think you, you're a very confident person, you know. And I think you know you belong, but just to get that extra validation just makes, yeah. just makes you feel good. It helps a lot, you know. So, um, cool. So, you know, I, I always like because you, you really. You're musical. You're you guy that's a real producer. Like I know your nickname is the Young Quincy Jones, right? That's what they call. It. That's what yeah, they, yeah, they call. Yeah. How did you get? Who who gave you that nickname? Um, just people hearing me. You know, they they I reminded people of Quincy Jones a lot. Okay, like his journey was my journey was almost the same as his. Right. He studied um music. He played the trumpet. Yeah, I played the flute. He studied um, orchestration. I studied, uh, I studied that too in my when I was studying classical music. Right. You know, he signed to AKG. I'm signed to AKG also. You know, you know what I mean. So, yeah. So yeah, man, that's, man, how, that's how I got. Every time I watch his documentary, um, there's two of them on Netflix. I love to watch all, multiple times, which is his Quincy's and then uh, Clarence Avon, yeah, the Black Godfather. Yeah. But, yeah. Anytime I just want to watch Skin Inspired by Quincy Jones, I mean, 28 Grammys. Yeah, no. I watched <laughs> it. I watched the same. I watched yeah, it also. It's oh. just like, wow. It's just like what this man was able to do for a lot of people. I mean, thank God he's still here, you know? Thank God. He's still here. We haven't we haven't lost him. You know, we have, no. we've been losing too many legends. Too many. Too many. Too many, too many legends, man. You know, so... Um, Cool, and, and I want to end it by like, 
you're really big on mentorship. I know you like to do, uh, like to teach people about production and, and the way, the right way to do it and, and teach young people about, again, about the business, about what is what it is that you love doing. And talk to me about, you know, what you've been doing with Pajo Productions and kind of what the what the future is for you. And, and, and I know you are really big on artist development too. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You know, so talk to me a little bit about that. I want to kind of end it on there, uh, end it on that. You know, we've been talking for a long time. I've, been, I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, me, t- me teaching to the next generations to the next generation is a way is my way of giving back. Right. You know, God has blessed me to make my dreams come true. Right. And I know the the next the next kid he could he he can probably do follow the same route I did, but it may not happen. Right. You know what I mean? So and I know how hard it was for me to get to where I am. Right. It wasn't easy. Right. So I'm trying to help these young young kids, you know, what not to do. I'm trying to tell, teach them what to do and what not to do and right. how to prepare themselves. Because it's one thing to have the talent, but it's it's another thing to be mentally ready. Right. That's big. Right. You know what I mean? Because when you first go into the music industry, if you think you're going to start eating steaks and and um and <laughs> red snapper yeah. lobster you can nah, forget about that nah, nah, nah. Don't you know what i mean when yeah. i was at home every day i was eating lovely when i was on when, when i was on my own you know some days i had to figure out what was going to be my budget to buy my food at the dollar store yeah that's real the oodles and noodles were my best friends <laughs> You know what I mean? Some days I I used to boil the udon and noodles. Some day um saute them with um sausages. You find different ways. I found <laughs> and and I had to deal. I had to come to reality that this is my reality. Until I'm where I am, this is what I gotta I gotta go through. Right. So, so if you're not mentally ready to make that switch to downsize, yeah, you won't be able to keep up. Not knowing. When you gonna get your next paycheck? Right. You know what I mean? Ducking from the landlord because you haven't paid your rent yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is all reality. And right. whoever says that they didn't have that problem, whoever made it that says that they didn't have that problem, lying. They lying. Is lying. Yeah. You understand right. what I'm saying? So I'm keeping it real with these with the next generation. Right. It's not that if you think it's easy, it's not that easy. It's, so you right. mentally gotta you gotta be ready mentally. You gotta be strong. You got to be strong-minded and you got to have tough skin because yeah. not because before you get your first yes, you're going to hear a thousand no's. Right. Like Puffy, when, Puff, when Puffy gave me my first no, it prepared me for the rest of my career. Right. Because he was straight. He was blunt. He said, I can't buy your music. Right. And it hurt. I almost cried. You understand what I'm saying? Right. But it, I turned that situation into into a positive situation right like till today you can tell me no you can reject me i don't it ain't gonna it ain't gonna phase me right because i got that first no by puff that that grounded me right that made me know that i had to work if i would if i would 
want to become success, successful. Maybe so I have yeah. so so what I do is it's called um one on one with one on one with Steve Pajot. Yeah. So I teach music theory, because music theory is the is um is the alphabet of music. Right. It's like speaking English. If you don't know your ABCs, you're gonna have problems speaking English the proper way or right. any language. Right. You're gonna be limited. Right. So if you don't know your theory, which is the foundation. How are you gonna know how to play your scales? Right. How to play chord progressions? How to make a bridge? Right. How to go into a bridge and come out of a bridge and come back to the main chords? Right. All that is music theory. Right. Like if a singer is singing, she's off key. If you don't have no ear training, how are you gonna know to tell them to sing her oh, you're a bit sharp or you're a bit flat, do it over. Right. That's all the training. You understand what I'm saying? Right. So I teach this before you even start doing the music production with me, you gotta take these classes. Right. That way I know we're gonna be talking the same language. Right. You know what I mean? So I teach them music production. I teach them how to mix, how to layer their sounds, what kind of sounds you gotta choose to make your production sound sound wreck like radio hits right right because if you're not familiar with sounds you might take dink winky dinky sounds and your sound and your music will never sound like a real producer right like a real hit record right but that's what i've been doing for the last last four years last four years and what led me to that is is back in 2002 every month I would get a call from SAE to give master classes. Okay. And I, I had built a rapport with John Jensen. He was the one in charge at SAE in New York. Okay. So when he left to school, you know, the new the new staff that came in, they didn't call me. And I was tired of calling and nobody was returning my call. So I said, you know what? I know how to do it. And and while I was doing what I was doing, teaching those master classes, SAE paid for a, um, a summer summer training class for me to learn how to teach. Okay. So I got my New York license certificate as a teacher. Oh, oh nice, nice. It was, it was every Saturday morning from eight o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And, it, and they paid for it. So I jumped on the occasion. Right. And that's why I know how to teach properly, properly right. teach and build and patience. You gotta have patience. If you wanna yeah. become a teacher, you gotta have patience because right. not everybody's gonna learn or grasp everything you're gonna say on the first on the first run. Right. I think you as know. a consultant, as a coach, what I do, same thing. You gotta I consider myself a teacher, but not necessarily in the corporate sense, you know. Mm -hmm. You definitely have to have a lot of patience for that too. Right. Everybody yeah. doesn't everybody doesn't grasp it yeah, right away, even though the concept is simple to me, you know, mm -hmm. it might not be as simple to the person that you're trying to teach it to. So definitely, yeah. I agree with that for sure, man. So once the, the call starts, st stop coming, then that's when I I did one-on-one -on -one with Steve Pajot. And I got students all over the world, in Lebanon, in Europe, in Montreal, in the United States. And, awesome. and that's what I've been doing. And recently, I started a music house. Okay. So that young producers and writers can get their music licensed 
just like how I'm licensing my music because right, right. it's an industry. If you don't know, if you don't know anyone in the industry, there's no way you're gonna get into it. You know how it is. Yeah, yeah. We have yeah. A fr- you have we have a friend in common. She can she can um, vouch for us, Michelle. Yeah, you know I mean, Michelle, yeah, Michelle. Let me tell you, yeah, Michelle Vice Master, who I will get on as a guest on this podcast. Yeah, she 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 says the same thing. You have to, and see, she's one of those who believes in learning how to pitch yourself. Yeah. You know, she doesn't believe in going to like a music X-ray or taxi or any of these programs mm-hmm. that say, "Oh yeah, pay us and we'll pitch it." Like, no, learn how to do the research and yeah. pitch yourself. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm about to do for for all these producers. But it's gonna be on the umbrella of Pajal Pajal Production. Right. I love that. I love every. I love everything you're doing, man. Your story is truly, like I said, what this podcast is all about, man. And I've learned so much about. Thank you, you know, very much. What it is that what, what what it is that you've been able to accomplish, man, and the fact that you're still doing this. 20 plus years later, and you still find joy. 20 plus years later, after you quote unquote made it, right? You've been on long, way longer than 20 years, but 20 yeah. years as a as a real, I guess, a true professional, right? And, and, and thank you. And um, man, you, you've you've done some amazing things, and you've you know, and and you're going to continue to do that. I'm just glad, you know, it was fortunate enough for us to connect and for us to meet, and for you to believe in again, believe in what I do, and and, and and that means so much to me, man. So where can where can where can people find you? Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna wrap this up, but where can people where can people find you? How to connect? How can they connect with you if they wanna if they wanna work with you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all my handles are the same: Steve Pajot at Steve Pajot, um, S T E V E P A G E O T. And for the one-on-one, for the one-on-one classes is one-on-one with Steve Pajot on Instagram. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. All my handles are the same. And one thing I would like to add also, no matter how big you become, always remain humble. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you don't know who's the next person that's going to open the door for you. Exactly. Always, always be ready to learn. Like I'm still a student. Right. Be nice to people. Cause you don't, you don't know how long you're going to last in this industry. The right. reason why I'm still here, cause I remain humble. I treated people with res- utmost respect. Right. And, and, and I treated people the way I want to be treated. Absolutely. And I never walked around with saying, with all my accolades on my sleeves. You understand what I'm saying? Like every day that I that I come into the studio, it's like a brand new day for me. Right. You know, I don't think about, oh, I want a Grammy or I'm platinum, I don't need to do this. Nah, I'm still learning. I'm exactly. learning about the new technology, the new ways of mixing, the new way of making pro- um, production. Right. And I'm open to meet all types of people. It's just like with you. Imagine when you had reached to me, and I'll be like, oh man, I don't know him. I never heard of him. I wouldn't have been able to speak at uni- uh, a cell university. It's because of you. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Right. And Hanker also. Right. Like I've been trying to get in touch with her for, for the longest. And it was hard to get in touch with her. 
But the fact that, you know, she saw our com- convos, she reached out to me. Right. And she's in, she's in, she's in, um, she's in, Netherlands. in right. the Netherlands. You understand, you understand what I'm saying? Right. It's like your connection opened five, four, four, five doors for me. Hey, man. It's the, I want to say to me because see, I'm not, I, I'm not a guy that has a major um, celebrity um, or, or known clients, but one thing I have is I impact people, man. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, what one thing people love about me is the fact of that I have a disability and there's nobody I've met in the space, man, as a black executive doing what I'm doing, you know, and have the respect that I have of people like yourself and Hanka and so many other people across many countries and, and just people who believe in what I do. And I do not ever take that lightly. You mm-hmm. know, um, I know my value. I know what I'm worth. And I just want to thank you for, for letting me know how, 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 how much you, you appreciate what I do. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. And, yeah. And um, another thing too, before we end, you know, that you you had shared this when you were speaking at full set, but you said it's important too for people coming up to make sure that they pick the right partners in their life that they want to walk through life with, especially in this business, because like you said, the money don't come in right away. Oh yeah, exactly. The money doesn't come in right away, so you got to make sure you that whoever you're with understands that this grind is really like, or it's probably best to stay single. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because the reason why I had said that is I remember. On my come up, um, there was a situation and the girl was like, why do I got to go through the struggle with you? Why don't you call me after you finish making it? <laughs> and, and I was like, what? Because I had never, you know, witnessed something like that. You know, my parents been together since they were kids. You understand right, what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Ups and down. My mom never disrespected him. My dad never disrespected her. Right. It was like, if he had a dollar... She had a dollar. She had a dollar. Right. If if she had a dollar, yeah. he had the same dollar. Yeah. If things weren't going well too well in the music, like like some months, you know, things weren't that easy. She still, she yeah. was still there for right. us and for him. She never mistreated him or make him feel like he was he wasn't worth anything because he was going through through you know through some downside downtime you understand what i'm saying right so so that's why you got to choose don't look at the at the beauty you gotta when you choose a partner either for a woman or for a guy you got to make sure that what's in their heart is gonna be is is gonna be of value because right. these pretty women when you're growing up you the man right when you fall off <laughs> she's going for the next come up right Right. You understand what I'm saying? Right. And it's it's always the average looking girl that most of us don't want that's gonna be with you right through the entire grind. And so true. It's so true. And you notice Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg, they all with the people they was with before they was quote unquote before. on. Because they know them as oh I, I know Calvin. Snoop Dogg is who y'all know. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you know, with, with T.I. Hey, I know Clifford. Terrorists, Ti, y'all know Ti. I'm, you know, and, and with you know, and so on and so forth. You know, with, with Ice Cube, well, I know that, that's O'Shea to me. That ain't Ice. That's Ice yeah, Cube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, I think sometimes 
that and and you also when you when you with somebody that long, they 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 knew what you when you didn't have nothing. Yeah. So okay, so they understand the the the, the ups and downs of the journey of this journey in entertainment. You know, and it, not just music but entertainment in general. You have to have. Um, it's not like it's not like entrepreneurship, you know. It's not like entrepreneurship. This is like same type of principles uh, exist, and, and because you gotta be the, you gotta be with somebody who believes, who believes, and who's going to stand by you. Yeah, understand that that you know. Look, if you're gonna, I need you to rock with me. And if you're gonna rock with me, I need you to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, some yeah. days that means some days that means I need you to hold it down. Some yeah. sometimes you gotta hold it down. I'm not gonna go work another five right now because I have to have my time open so I can go do what I need to do. But I mean, yeah. you might have to go work the nine to five, and you may have to be the one that go gets the health insurance, and you may have to be the one to go do you know do all that so that we can get to where I gotta go. Because and and a smart person understands what's gonna make Steve happy. Yeah. Okay. Steve working a nine to five job at wherever is it gonna make Steve the best version of Steve. Steve doing music is what's going to make Steve the best version of Steve. If I want to be with that Steve, then I need to do what I need to do to make sure yeah. that he's the best version of himself. And yeah. I think that's the best way to approach it. Yeah. And to piggyback on that, that same person who's who helped you out through your struggles, when you make it, make sure you stay with that same person. Right. Don't go out and, and get, get a flyer chick, get another dude or another right. woman you know, because now you feel you need you need somebody to look right. the part. Nah, right. stay with that same person. Because right. when you lose everything, it's that person who's going to remember who you were before the glitz and glamour. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly, man. Well, Steve, man, it's been a pleasure, man, to have you as a guest on my podcast. We got to do this again very soon. Well, yeah. Thanks and, for uh, having me. And I, I appreciate it, man. So, guys... With that all being said, this is your host, Darrell Peart. This is the Encouragement Inspired Podcast. Until next time, we're out of here. Peace.